Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, my David, Kira Murphy and Ken Early here, ready to get this Irish Times second captain's podcast started. Hello, Sailor. Hey, how are you? What? What's, what's going on? I don't know. Well, he's you never called me Sailor right? before, yeah? I was Sailor, I mean. Yeah, I wasn't just saying. Yeah. Yeah. You got a problem with that? When Japan shocked the world last Saturday, we all got a little giddy with excitement about what this meant for the future of rugby. Was it going to herald the age of the smaller, smarter, more tactically astute team? Were sides like South Africa with the, I'm going to call it a slightly waddling gait imposing them by their gigantic shoulders and arms, going to be consigned to history? To borrow a quote, Ken. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, I've just had a look at the England team. Stuart Lancaster is picked to play Wales on Saturday night. The era of the little guy was short-lived. It was mm. good while it lasted, but it was just one game. Japan In years to come, we'll uh, we'll talk about the those five glorious days of the <laughs> three of them had no games in them. Uh, the five glorious days of the Rugby World Cup, where we thought size Could truly didn't matter. Could I maybe suggest to the Rugby World Cup that they stop um, basically making it impossible for these smaller teams to actually do anything by making them play? Um, tough games in quick succession it's completely stupid yeah there's an argument this time around that they've tried to redress the balance that a lot of teams Ireland are, have a handy one they're just week after week whereas other teams are playing midweek games you know France for example but France are play, I guess are playing two poor teams it's, a, it's, two, a, it's two, a joke two, two easy games whereas Japan have their two hardest games back to back which does seem a little yeah. bit we, we, and France are much better equipped to be able to do that than Japan are yeah. South Africa would be much better equipped to do that because they've got you know their entire squad is full of good players and oh, I guess by like definition I guess by definition if you're one of the weaker teams in the group then you're going to have more hard games more, you're going to have more hard games and they have double the, hard, the amount of hard games listen I, I'm, I'm, if taken to its logical conclusion you're asking the Rugby World Cup to be even longer than it already is and as it is, it's a bit of a beast. All I'm asking so. for is fairness. They have been screwed over the years. I don't know if they're, uh, the smaller teams are getting as screwed in this one um, as, as they have in previous tournaments. But and maybe it's not a case of just making it longer. I don't know what the solution is. But well, less teams seem... is, the, is the other argument. I mean, if Instead you're... of making it longer, start it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, that's just a little too meta. George there. Ford, the mercurial George Ford, he was dumped on his ass a couple of times by Johnny Sexton at Lands End Road in the Six Nations. Dump. Out. Replaced by the more physically imposing Owen Farrell, who's in. And the centre partnership we've made up of Sam Burgess. Sorry, sorry, Murph. Slamming Sam Slamming Burgess. Slamming Sam Burgess. Just give him a And name. Brad Barrett. So they've gone with all their monsters there uh, to play against the equally monstrous Welsh backline. Mm. Uh, so that would be a nice open free yeah. game. Well, I mean, I think uh, I think there was every well. We know what Wales are going to bring to a game like this, uh, which is hard carrying and lots of it and tackling. The idea, the hope was that England might try and play around them a small bit, but they've given up on that, uh, or they don't fancy it at least for for Saturday evening. But either way, to be honest, we're blessed to have a World Cup game of this magnitude this early in the tournament. I mean, this to be fair, this is a this could. This would be a really epic World Cup semi-final if England and Wales were playing. I thought you were going to say World Cup final there. I was yeah, like I mean, I think to be honest, you you need, you need a Southern Hemisphere team do, in uh, really. World Cup final probably. But basically, it's all on the line uh, on Saturday. You would think that the loser is in is in not a very good position to get out of this pool. So, yeah, I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Eight o'clock Saturday always a, a pretty good kickoff. Ken, I think uh, you were quite impressed. Speaking of physiques, by the shape, Barry McGuigan is in on Second Captain's Live last night. <laughs> I saw you afterwards comparing notes. Unbelievable. Barry McGuigan. Yeah. 50, 54 years of age? Uh, yeah, he is. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was, so. Well, he was 24 when he fought Pedroza, and that was 30 years ago. So he, um, yeah, I mean, he's he's fairly ripped on. I don't know uh, if, it was, it was, if it was apparent to people. He's a lot more ripped than he was when he was actually a boxer. Mm. Uh, and so I asked him about his. I was like, Barry, you know what's the story? Like, we, you're outrageous physique. What's going on? I was here wearing this. That was the conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he said, Well, actually, you know, I do. I do. I train about three times a week. You know, um, lifts weights. Basically, he doesn't. He said people who uh, older people who go, you know, uh, you know, running long, you know, running a lot. Stupid. They're ruining themselves. You know, started pointing to all the different parts of your body that you're ruining. Just if you are out there. You know, pounding about. Owen was sort of apologetically, "Well, I am training for a marathon," and and Barry kind of looked at me and said, "Well, you know, I mean, you're you're not God you're not that old. You know what I mean? You're not you're, you're not in the danger zone yet, but maybe what are you forty? But, but he did say, but he did say, but look, when you're finished training that marathon, I mean, you you'll probably lose a bit of weight. You might lose ten, twelve, maybe a stone and weight. <laughs> I thought, really, Willie, do you think? <laughs> Does he actually have a stone? He's fairly scrawny if I lose a stone. Here. But Barry, Barry McGuigan ran a critical uh, eye over McDevitt and said uh, he thinks he he could he'll probably lose a stone over the course of training for the marathon. But by then, the way, I've done most of my training. You know, we're towards the latter end here, Barry. Yeah. I was about to point out. <laughs> but once, when do you run the marathon next year? Right. <laughs> once you've done that, then you know why don't you then get into the gym and just do a bit of start doing a bit of strength training, a few bench presses, squats. Squats are the best exercise you can do. You know, uh, deadlifts. You know, just this kind of stuff. And then he, he started miming doing stuff. Then he uh, he actually said, "Look," and he peeled off his jacket. You know, his jacket mm. is like bent on. Peels off his jacket. He's like, "Look, feel that triceps. Feel it. Feel my triceps there." <laughs> I was like, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, yeah." So he kind of tensed up his triceps, and I kind of you know nervously mm. put my hand. On, honestly, telling you, he was more impressed. Ken was more impressed. That was a serious triceps. Even more impressed than Gay Byrne was with Samuel Mech. Mm. I have to McGuigan's say, opponent right, back in uh, Navin in the 1980s. Ken was telling me this l- a little later on in the evening, and he said, "Murph, put out your hand there, and I'll feel your tricep." And honestly, he felt it, and it was he, even as he was doing it. And I, I, you know, I didn't really flex Ken. It had the same consistency was, as a Super Queen sausage, like a dead fish, yeah. just kind of like a squashy, you know, just disgusting. <laughs> No shaped, shapeless blob. You said you, you actually you had your tricep removed. 
Yeah, it gives me a lovely slender arm. <laughs> My arms are so skinny. When I'm wearing tank tops, when I'm wearing tank tops, I just I don't want a big muscular arm there. Did you present your triceps to Barry? I did not. I, I didn't think there was any point in that, and I, I think he, I think we both understood that we, without even saying it. There was no point in me saying to him, "Here, check out my triceps." Yeah. Because it, it you know, it wouldn't have made much of an impact. Uh, I mean, other than possibly prompting concern for my health, uh, but he did say, "Look, this is." I'm just telling you, Barry McGuigan's fitness advice. Uh, lift weights, uh, train yourself in strength. Do not allow the passage of time to sort of to make you into a little stooped old man. It doesn't have to feel like going four rounds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't have to feel like that at all. Just a little bit of strength training. Because he said, particularly people as they get, you know, as they get over 40, for instance, and they, you know, obviously that's yeah. a long way off. Of course. For some You know, please here, God. Please talk, God. Talk to me in like a decade, Ken. <laughs> Right, but then you know little things start to kind of drip. Oh, you start to get a little stooped here. So if you build up the muscle around that, suddenly you know you can preserve a kind of youthful power, suppleness, uh, and uh, flexibility into um, well advanced old age, possibly even into your fifties. Matt Williams is going to join us in studio in a little Jack while. Organ. That's the man. Uh, Simon's gone crazy on the hot he buttons is. over What's there, as I call them in the trade. Wow, this is unbelievable. Dingo and the baby stuff here, yeah. Simon. Uh, so I'm looking forward to chatting to Maddie for the first time face-to-face in a few years. We've spoken to him loads over Skype, over the phone and all of that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the biggest star in UFC, not Conor McGregor. Ken McGregor has talked a lot about selling out football stadiums. Hasn't actually gone and done it yet, but Ronda Rousey has, the undoubted female star of the sport. She's fighting in Melbourne. Tickets went on sale the start of the week and sold out apparently as fast as the AFL Grand Final. And uh, it's 55,000 capacity or something there. They're talking about getting extra seats in, trying to get 70,000 people for a UFC fight, mm. uh, which is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely huge. Although, I suppose there's probably quite a few fans in Australia. I mean, people are coming from all over the place for those things. Um, the cheapest tickets, I think, about $100. Yeah, it's funny for a sport that was so on the fringes up until relatively recently mm. to be able to shift those kind of numbers. I mean, boxing doesn't do that, for example. Yeah. And boxing's been a big entrenched sport in a lot of people's consciousness for 100 years. Well, I think it shows you the power of uh, a really good um, kind of... I mean, essentially, it's the, the UFC is a bit like the Premier League. You know what I mean? Boxing doesn't have an organization like that that's promoting... Um, you know the the whole sport. Well, it's not the whole. It's not the whole sport. It's important not to con- confuse the UFC and the sport. But it is the biggest and most successful of the you know MMA organizations. So they've got. I mean, they essentially turn their athletes into movie stars. You know what I mean? It's just constant barrage of. You can. You almost feel like you could. You could if you wanted watch these guys. All the time. You could just basically watch them. Just constantly is, yeah, on TV. Yeah, Ronda Rousey does all the chat shows. All the. I suppose those more traditional elements as well as well as you know other. In fairness, the a couple of things I like about her, um, and I don't know dislike getting better. By the way, I set that up rather strangely. Yeah. But the one thing that's really uh, that really struck me was her calling Floyd Mayweather out. And she's done it, I think, a few times now, so it might be getting a little bit repetitive. But it was the ESPYS. I think she just won. Yeah, uh, an award at the ESPYS. Murph. She won uh, best fighter at the ESPYS and said, "I wonder how Floyd feels being beat by a woman for once." <laughs> um, which you know, which you can kind of say is right. It's, it's kind of a flippant line, but it's one thing. It actually isn't is flippant. Oh, no, uh, no, I no. think I, I actually think it's um, it was a pretty cool thing to say, and 
you would think that female sports stars would be queuing up around the block to have a pop at Floyd Mayweather. But everyone is always afraid to say whatever. So it does show Completely. the power yeah. she has in her sport and the standing she has in the US that she can just say that. She said, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Her, I mean, she also had a go at him. She said, oh, get back to me when you learn to read and write. Something well, like I don't this. like that. You know what I mean? That was, that was a couple of months ago. Um, but, you know, it's a weird one, actually, because people, one of the things that, uh, say, people will talk about is like, would Ronda Rousey beat Floyd Mayweather in a, in a <sighs> flight, right? And I can, I can see your kind of, you sighed there, McDowd, and it was like as though I might have asked you, Will there ever be a boy born who can swim faster than a shark? Yeah, right? that's exactly what. Are you? <laughs> but okay, but on the other hand, they both fight at the same weight, right? One hundred and forty pounds, I think. Uh, you know, Floyd sure might have the edge in terms of uh, uh, you know his um, boxing ability, but does he know how to grapple? I mean, what is Floyd going to do? We've wandered knee-deep <laughs> into... Well, Thankfully. You've, well, I'll tell you what you've wandered into, right? You've wandered knee-deep into part of the reason why that uh, fight has sold out 70,000 tickets in two seconds flat. There are a lot of people who are interested in precisely this type of bear versus shark, you know, <laughs> argument. It's, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying Owen, we should necessarily do a piece on whether... Ron Rezzi would beat Floyd Mayweather just to say that there are people who would pay to watch that fight. Simon, stop the madness. The England team has been named to play Wales. Uh, it was leaked a couple of days ago, but uh, it's been confirmed that George Ford has dropped. What do you think? Uh, England's biggest game. It's been looming for years for them. Um, they've had George Ford since last autumn, played really well. Maybe was 6 out of 10 against Fiji, um, but for them to suddenly drop their guy that if they're to win a World Cup you'd imagine it's George Ford playing really well Owen Farrell's a good player but you can't see him winning say a World Cup final with him at out half and, and their team has actually been built around George Ford the fact that it's this massive game that Lancaster decided to do this for suggests panic it suggests overthinking it's a huge decision and everything if this goes wrong, everything about Lancaster will be judged through the prism of George Ford being dropped. It's funny, I suppose his defence would be privately, look at the bloody group we ended up in. Like, of course I want to play this, I want to get the team going and only think about what's going to win the tournament. But actually, we could be dumped out of here if we lose this game. And almost no other team is in that situation besides the teams in those groups. Well, South Africa have found themselves in that situation now by losing to Japan. But you know, Yeah, but you know the selection I mean? doesn't matter. Like They were always going to potentially, they knew this group for a while. George Ford is nothing to do with how hard their group is. He's their best out half, and they've dropped him. Yeah, you know how hard their group is doesn't relate to what out half he picks. Well, except that he, if they had an easier group, he could finesse the team whatever way he wanted because they're going to get through it anyway. He he doesn't have the luxury, is what I'm saying, to allow George Ford to play his way into the tournament. This is the game they have to win, and George Ford is their best out half. All right, you've uh, beaten me down, Simon. Matt Williams is with us in studio, Matt, for the first time, I think, since we started the, the podcast. Great to see you again. How are you? I'm oh, fantastic. Oh, it's great to be here. Great to see you guys yeah. again, instead of talking from my kitchen in Sydney. Exactly. <laughs> Lovely it's to great. see you face-to-face, -face. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. How are you enjoying things so far, World oh, Cup? Oh, gee, I'm really loving it. I'm really... Uh, I, was, I was talking to Dennis Hickey only 15 minutes ago, just saying how much we're both enjoying the rugby teams running the ball and very expansive uh, approach to the game, which is, is really... Uh, Refreshing, entertaining, and and also great for the for the game. So you know you get that chance every four years to really put your best foot forward. And you think back to two thousand and seven, when Argentina were doing so well. But 
it was boring rugby. Oh, it really was, you yeah. Know, just kick and chase, kick and chase. And you go out for a cup of tea and you might walk the dog and come back. And, oh, that's, <laughs> Same thing. That's good, three points, you know. Where, where this has been great from all the sides. Uh, you know, even, even the the, young, the the minnows, if you like, are hanging in there till the 60-minute mark, and uh, which shows how much they've come forward. So it's been really refreshing. Mm, I think maybe that expansive rugby might come to an end on Saturday night. England against Wales, the first big sort of heavyweight matchup of the tournament so far. The teams have been confirmed. The England team was leaked a couple of days ago, actually. And uh, all the big guys are in there. Owen Farrell comes in for George Ford. Seems a little harsh to me and George Ford. Sam Burgess is in at inside centre. Brad Barrett's playing alongside him. So certainly England have picked the bruisers. Wales, all they really have is bruisers. It might be a slightly tighter affair than what we've seen so far. Oh, you've got to remember, the only good thing England have ever done for rugby is invent it. So, you know, don't expect them to come out and do anything. They're, they're, they're there to survive. Uh, you know, I'm very disappointed Ford's not there. I think he's a really creative player. The, the reasoning we're hearing is he's missing a couple of tackles. But they've basically just put their... their uh, uh, if you like their opinion forward, we're going to kick our goals and bosh it and run it hard and all that. Now let me let me just put one other thing in there. Burgess might be the the little uh, chink in that armour. When he came off the bench the other day, his offloading was exceptional. He was right up there with Sonny Bill Williams. He was fantastic. And I've been predicting this for a while. It's hard for people in in the north. To, to take it in because you don't see enough of the course, Australian yeah. Rugby League. I mean, he's a superstar in Rugby League and the way he played the last two years in Rugby League was as good as anything I've ever seen in that type of play where he's taking the ball, he stays on his feet, gets to his shoulder and he's got this, just like Sonny Bill, the one-hander out the back which all the kids try and fail and drop the ball and I try and say, don't ever do that unless you're as good as Sonny Bill or, or this guy and he is good. He is really good. So Burgess could be something that the Welsh find very, very hard to uh, handle. The English have had so much time to prepare for this and the pressure obviously comes on them. The tabloid media starts focusing on them in a World Cup unlike it does at any other time and suddenly rugby's the number one story. Do you think, I, we hear a lot about players panicking, do you think coaches panic as well and is this a, a panic selection? It's an interesting one. When I first saw the selection, I said yes, but then... You know, when I heard Joseph was out, and I'm a big Joseph fan, I think he's had a really great 12 months. Uh, I thought, well, what do you do in that scenario? So though, the difficulty when you lose a 13 is your, is your defence. And I've got to be really fair to Lancaster here. The, the defending as a 12 compared to a 13 is a different planet. You see someone like Brian O'Driscoll makes it look so easy, and it's not. It's a really difficult position to defend in. So he put his best defender in that position. And I can understand that. I can understand it, uh, what he's done. The, the position with Farrell is different. He's basically made that statement. And look, I think it's a, it's a career-defining selection. That pool, I don't believe a bonus point's going to matter too much on getting out. It'll matter coming second, but you're going to have to win every game to get out of that pool. So he's saying we're, we're going to, we're, this is going to be a 1-0 job you know, in, in football terms. It's 1-0. And, and he's made that choice. So yeah, he, he's. I don't know if it's it's a panic, so much uh, Simon, but I think it's definitely a career-defining selection for for Stuart Lancaster. For, oh, for Lancaster as a coach, it just yes. seems to me that you've got this talented guy. Like you, you know what Owen Farrell brings to the table. Uh, and this was wasn't so long ago since Owen Farrell was seen as the the young up-and-coming lad, and he's, he's still reasonably young. But George Ford, this silky sort of player, uh, very skillful. You put a lot of trust in him. You've groomed him over the last little while. He's into the World Cup, maybe has missed one or two tackles, as you're saying. No more than we knew he would, though. He, he's always missed one or two tackles. And then, and then Any out half that size does. Yeah. So it's not like new information has entered. 
the equation. It's just that something has changed in Lancaster's mind. Yes. Uh, the ar- I, I think that's pressure. Yeah, it, it very well could be. Lancaster would argue that I'm, I'm picking horses for courses. I've got to win this game. This is the best selection to win this game. The problem with Farrell is he stays very deep. Um, if you watch Freddie Michelac the other night for France, takes the ball to the game lines. The old, that game line theory developed in 1927 by the original Waratahs. You know, it's one of the only concepts in rugby or any sport that's lasted this time. And it's, I've watched the games very closely. And when you see that ball carrier take the ball to the line or accept it very flat and take it to the line, puts you under a huge amount of pressure, but it also puts the defence under pressure. Bernard Foley did it quite well last night. Uh, Ford can do it. Michelac against the weaker teams does it. It's instinctive. Michelac's problem is when the pressure comes on. He's got big New Zealand back rowers running. <laughs> he gets deeper and deeper. I can't blame him. He might be doing the yeah. same. But but that that flatness is what puts teams' defence under pressure. And and really, I just I just don't believe that anyone in that English side, with the exception of of Ford has got that. And then you put Ford taking it to the line with this devastating run of Burgess outside him. You've got a pretty lethal combination there. Uh, and I think they've walked away from a big opportunity. I think what it does tell us either way is that if it is a horses for courses, that Lancaster is thinking more about the opposition um, than he has done in a while because he's been picking pretty exciting backlines through the Six Nations and now he's, he's thinking more about what the opposition will do. Is that, is that a negative thing? Is that a bad thing to do? It's a very it's a very English rugby thing, and you're thinking, don't lose it, rather than I'm going to win it. And it's a very, very English rugby position. It, it always, in my opinion, opens the English up to pressure. You, you know, that you're going in with that negative, we, we, we don't want to lose, we're not, don't lose this game, rather than saying we're going to win it. If you go at them, you can break them. And, and in the same breath, it's exactly what happens to New Zealand when they come to a World Cup. Carter came off the field the other day and said, what do you feel? He said, relief. And I thought, wow, that is a big statement for a 100-test man like Carter to say, I'm feeling relief after beating Argentina. Yeah, because in the, in the championship, Argentina, they, yeah, it's another win. Brush them aside. Yeah. And, and so they, they start thinking New Zealand, which is why they failed on so many occasions, don't lose this game. And, and England are saying that. So they're under great pressure. The, the really difficult or sad part is I don't think Wales have got a lot. They've got a lot of injury and you know, they certainly haven't set the world on fire in my books. So I think Australia will beat them and England should beat them. But England have, have set themselves up to put themselves under a real, real strong amount of pressure. We have to wait a few weeks for our defining game against France. Matt, I don't know what you've made of France so far. We saw them again yesterday. Uh, they haven't set the world alight at the moment, but I suppose we didn't necessarily expect them to. We didn't expect them to come out and start being all freewheeling. Uh, are they along the lines of what you expected? Pretty much, Alan. I think the difficulty, I know the difficulty for France, the national side, is they get just no time together. In, in the Six Nations and November Internationals because of the demands of the clubs. And even in the Six Nations, the two games, they've got to go back to the club and they're bashed up and they can't train to the Wednesday. It's, it's a very difficult scenario in, compared to, to Ireland, to what we have here. You know, It's a great scenario because the IRFU own the clubs, for want of a better term, own the provinces. The, the opposite is the case in France. Now, at a World Cup, that's different. They get three months prep and they get to be with each other the whole time. They don't go back to Toulouse and, and Castro and so on. They stay together. The longer the tournament goes on, the better France get. And every World Cup, that's been the case. Even the last World Cup where they were quite shambolic and losing to Tonga. They, they you know, in my opinion, they were, were pretty much 
uh, robbed of a, of a World Cup. They, the referee had made a couple of decisions that everyone felt he should have. They'd be the current World Cup holders. Um, now, I would, if, as from an Irish point of view, I'd much prefer to play France yesterday than in three weeks because I think the French will get better. They, they definitely they'll get their combinations going better. They'll figure out which centres are their best, uh, the, the best centres, you know, Fafana is a very good player. Whether he goes with Bastro or Fiku, you know, Fiku, I like I like Fiku and Fafana together. They're really probably my type of running rugby players. But they didn't play well last night, and and they haven't played well. Pickamoles has been outstanding, and then he plays him two games in a row instead of giving him a rest. But Pickamoles made very well in the French way, so I just want to keep playing. So you, you're just not sure on where that where that sort of pans out. Also, it's their scrum half. Uh, you know, Paris the best scrum half for me, but he, he, I don't think he'll pick him. He won't go with it, and you know you've got Michelac and Remy Tail there, and Remy Tail at best is a is a uh, tradesman like ten. There's no one setting that back line up to get to bring these attacking guys into. Does Michelac get hammered a little more though than is deserved? Certainly in Ireland, he's almost at this joke figure. Anytime he, he's playing, it's almost an assumption. Well, Michelac's there. That's a weak link, as you say. Maybe it is against the biggest team, so maybe I'm just being too kind on him here, but. He, we give out about players not having a spark and not being creative in the way that they used to be. And Michelak is one guy who will take a risk, uh, and yet it seems to me he gets hammered for it more than being praised. Well, yeah, him getting picked by Saint Andre, I think sometimes people obsess over the things a player can't do, and it, with when you're picking Michelak, you're focusing on the things he can do because you know the things he can't do, and it's the same with George Ford. And yet, for all the criticism of Saint Andre, the fact that he's now chosen to go with Michelac in a World Cup, assuming he does, he could still change his mind. But I, th- I think it's it's a nice reflection on a coach when he's focusing on what a player can do, and something Schmidt has always done. We know from the players who've retired under him with Leinster or Ireland, the things you were good at when you came into the setup with Joe. He said, "I'm going to make you better at them. Don't worry about the few things that you can't do. Lo- There's something every player has a flaw, mm. you know." And uh, I think it reflects really well on Saint Andre. Yeah, I. I, I th- I just feel, um, and then you know what the Senate, uh, Philip San Andre doesn't ring me up and ask my opinion, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I definitely would have had Tron Duke in front of Remy Tal. I think a, a, a battle between Tron Duke and um, Michelak for that ten might be better. It's just uh, my problem with Freddie is his very first game out of the under twenties was for an Ireland A side, uh, sorry, a France A side against Ireland. I was coaching it was up at Lansdowne Road. And he ripped us apart. Yeah. Ripped us apart. I think he scored 21 points. The next week, he was in the national side. So he went from the 20s to the A's to the nationals. And he's been a great player for France over many years. It's just he seems to step back under great pressure. Uh, And maybe a string of games starting at 10 will do him the world of good as well. So it's a difficult one. But France have been like that. They've just been really unpredictable. But more than that, they've walked away from who they are. And I don't think French rugby can be its, at its best until they accept who they are, which is that, that great running, unpredictable side. And, and you, you might be right, Simon, you might need some of that unpredictability in there. That's actually very interesting because this is something that is coming from the Springbok camp this week, that we have to go back to who we are. And there seems to be a suggestion that maybe De Villiers and his players, uh, the rest of the players, aren't really listening to the coach anymore. Uh, the coach would have wanted them to take the three-pointers, play a bit more of a forward-oriented game. Uh, it certainly seems like that is what they're going to do from here on in, is, is that important in a World Cup that you actually, that's when you're under pressure, that's when you're going you're gonna to need to revert to what you're actually really good at. And while nobody particularly enjoys, well, maybe that's not, that's not fair, but the way Springboks play rugby maybe wouldn't be suited to most countries. For them, 
that's actually how they have to do it. And similarly to France, there's no point in trying to reinvent yourself for a World Cup, essentially. Uh, especially in the pool stages, aren't yeah. Especially in the pool stages. Because who set the agenda the other day, Japan or, or South okay. Africa? Japan set the agenda. And you can't let the little team set the agenda. It's like Fuji. Everyone mauls and goes to set piece against Fuji because they don't like that. That's not their strength. If you go in, let's play barbarian rugby and throw the ball over my shoulder, you'll invite Fuji into a game. And the same with the Samoans and the Tongans. You have to really tighten up and be be who you are. I, I think the South Africa... Look, I'll give Japan a lot of credit. They they were quite magnificent. But but South Africa were poor as well. And they got sucked into to playing a game. But they kept switching off. Oh, this team will crack, this team will crack. And I think it's also looking back... Uh, you know, when I coached Scotland, we beat Japan by 100 points. And that's 10 years ago. Now, since that, since that time, Japan have instituted an exceptionally good club competition. They've been very smart. They've only allowed two foreigners on each team on the field at any one time. So you have to have 13 Japanese-eligible players on the field. They have three divisions, and they've really gone about building their depth. They've been really selective in bringing in foreigners, and their quality of their national team has really improved, and full credit to them. And I think South Africa took them lightly, whereas England and Australia did not take Fuji lightly. And they went in and they ground them out and smacked them, and and that's and that shows great. Uh, uh, if you like, you're honouring your opponent by by doing that. You're not treating them flippantly, and and I thought that was uh, a failure of the South Africans. It'd be really interesting. The South African, the whole African mentality. The, the old they call it a lager. They get all their when they're being attacked on the Vortrek, they get their 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 uh, all their wagons. They lock them up with chains. They get underneath them with their guns and they just say, "Well, come and get us." And they're in that mentality now. They're up in Birmingham. They've got together. They're a good bat now for the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's nothing like a South African when the, they think the world's against them. And they, they're really hunkering down now. Because they'll still probably get through the pool. And they still get, People forget now the bonus point. they still got two points out of that game. Mm. Uh, and I think they'll still top that, that uh, pool. Just speaking of teams uh, going back to their strengths or to their being honouring their traditions... Um, Gordon Darcy's writing some good stuff for the Irish Times at the moment and he, he was speaking about offloading and how it's something Ireland have never done you know Joe Schmidt is probably the one criticism of him that Ireland haven't really offloaded under him and Gordon's opinion is that you need the players who can do that and Ireland have never really done that and now would be a crazy time to do it um, I'm actually doing a piece for Saturday for that <laughs> for the Irish Times so you're, how but, much you want to reveal yeah, the podcast yeah, I advance? love Gordon Darcy he's one of my friends and I, he's a guy I really admire and uh, I don't agree with him on that I, as far as you can't teach it and I think if you you go back to watch the green jersey in the early 90s when Willie Anderson was coaching it now defence was very different then and we've got to take that into consideration but you can you can coach two players to offload you have to it takes a long time uh, it's very interesting that the rugby league players coming to this tournament, like Burgess and Sonny Bill and Israel Folau, are offloading because that's what you do in rugby league. It's mm. what you're taught to do. Um, right now, and, and there's, a, there's a, something that's dropped out, which is footwork. And, and the idea of footwork, when we say sidestepping, it's before contact. Now, if you go to American football, uh, Jared Hayne, I don't know if you've been following Yeah, we follow that a little bit, yeah. Australian rugby league guy who's going over there, he's killing it. And you coach in, in American football, they coach footwork. I have an ex-Philadelphia Eagles sprints and agility coach who lives in Australia doing, take, looking after all the young guys that I'm helping at the moment, all the under-18s. And after 12 months, they are a different breed of athlete. They're getting the shoulders, they're stepping, their agility is fantastic. It's just an acquired skill. 
it takes, but it takes a long time. Any type of foot patterning or anything is not something it takes a week. So Joe starts it now, it's a failure. And, and that's where I agree with Gordon. The problem, Ireland's, uh, you know, when you look at New Zealand, they offloaded 25 times and Ireland didn't do any. So it, it is a difficulty for, for Ireland, especially in what we've seen this first week, which is some gorgeous, beautiful running rugby. Long may it return and keep going because it's the way the game's meant to be played. And that running rugby opens up spaces between the defenders. And that's where guys like Sonny Bill, when he came off the bench for New Zealand, like you sat back and said, well, who's, who's going to stop this guy in the last 20 minutes of the games? Who's, go, who's got the ability to? Because he is just staggeringly good. Like how, how that ball wasn't caught. He comes through and he gives this gorgeous one. The only thing was the winger was standing there and said, no one can get a ball out of that place. No, <laughs> he just didn't believe it was coming his way. Yeah. But, but it, you, you can, you know, and, and that's where I would would slightly differ from what Gordy's been saying. Matt, what are we looking for against Romania at the weekend? It's one of those ones. We've settled into the tournament against Canada now, so the worst-case scenario was scrape a win against Canada, play badly, have to play everyone again. Mm. to start. We're not in that 2007 situation. So what would you like to see at the weekend? I'd like to see a lot more of the bench, of the non-starting players get a game because from this game on, you've got to play your best team. So uh, Romania will be the last opportunity for the, your, your second 15 and your bench to get time on the field. And then you go into Italy and, and France, you've got to play your best team both those games, quarters and so on. You've got to be, you've got to have your best team out. And you may need one of those players because of injury later on. So that's where you've got to get this balance and the bravery of selection. So I hope there's 13, 12 or 13 uh, selections, changes to selections made. Um, and, and they get time and we've got a good bench that if there's trouble, they come on. And we saw... Romania were hanging in there till the 60-minute mark with France. I think Ireland are much more organised and will be much better for their run than France are. And also, as we've seen with the second-tier teams, that second game four days later, it's really tough for them, really, really tough. So I don't think Romania will even last to that 60-minute mark. Um, not being disrespectful to them in any ways. They've only got a few players playing second division France, one or two first division and one first division England, the rest are playing club football in Bucharest and you know they're not going to last 50, 60 minutes against the professionally conditioned athletes. So, so giving Ian Madigan time, giving Owen Redden time, I'd like to see Dev Toner, you know the challenge has been put down by Henderson, come on Dev get out, let's see what you can do, I'm not writing Dev off at all, I know a lot of people are, but you come to France and Italy and you saw France last night in the line out, they lose, you lose your line out ball and Australia, you lose your line out ball it affects your ability to score points. It's just a 101 of rugby. And what Dev gives you, he gives you line-out ball. And maybe you start Dev and get that ball and bring Henderson on later on. I'm, I'm not saying that it's what you definitely do, but you definitely have to give Dev the right to get out there and have a crack. Matt, listen, great to have you in studio. We'll talk to you again through the tournament. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. I can't speak. I can't speak. I can't speak.
Just to get back to this debate between the Matt Williams versus Gordon Darcy debate on offloading side, yep. where do you stand on that? I mean, I guess they, they can both be right in a way. Uh, of course, we'd like to offload more. And of course, you can be taught uh, your skill set can be improved enough to learn how to offload. But that's not the job of the national team manager either. So I, I think Schmidt has to probably go with what he's given there. I know you would like to see a, a little well, bit more. Well, th- the there was a stat from last weekend that the top five offloaders in the World Cup were all New Zealanders. Sonny Bill Williams, uh, a top spot, obviously. And New Zealand are the best team in the World Cup. So it suggests it's something you should probably do. The, the fellas who are really good at it, Sonny Bill, Israel Folau, etc., are giant men who the defenders are worrying about tackling. They're not worrying about where his arm is. They, the job is to get him down um, and let somebody else worry about the offloads, whereas smaller men really are worrying about getting through the tackle, making a couple of yards. Getting your hands free is like this optional extra that maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. if the tackler gets it wrong. But we do have a reasonably big back line. A couple of years ago, we had a small back line. Yeah. But our centres are quite powerful now. O- o- O'Driscoll was never big, but is, that, is it unfair when you're talking about somebody of that calibre? He was just such a special player that you nearly have to take him out of the equation. Yeah, that, in that good, sense. yeah. Are you, are you actually not just talking about height? That to be a good offloader... You actually just have to be... But O'Driscoll wasn't tall, you know? And what you're saying, your argument holds up in that O'Driscoll was a special player that, you know, the rules probably don't really apply to Brian O'Driscoll. But, I mean, don't you have to be quite tall to basically have the enough body left after you've been tackled to get well, the offload? Da- what's Dan Carter? Maybe six foot. He's really good at offloading as well. It doesn't get mentioned much because he's now at half. Yeah. Uh, no, I, height is probably actually really important as well but there's obviously loads of guys who can do it who weren't tall the Irish Times second captain's football podcast will be out today that's yeah they have asked for that really well you can laugh I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me what are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> well, Owen, we uh, talked to Richie because he was in to talk about um, a few issues that went on. Diego Costa, his whole approach to the game, um, the rights and wrongs of that, Owen. Oh, yeah. And also some Dutch football men who straight up don't like each other. Ooh, which Dutch football men? Uh, all the, of them. <laughs> they? Basically it, all of them hate everyone else. It is true. There's a, there's not a lot of love in that small country, in the football community. Um, Are we going to talk about Lewandowski's five goals? I think we can probably find time to mention one of the most stupendous uh, feats uh, ever, <laughs> ever <laughs> achieved uh, on a football field. That's right. honestly the most ridiculous thing. I was, wa- I was watching the, one of the 
YouTube clips, you know. Yeah. I, and I was, but in between like the second and third goals, I was like, oh my god, okay, we've seen them. You know, you know the way you kind of in internet in YouTube clips, you know, they show a few many replays. I was like, God, can you just okay, come on, let's get on to the next. And then I was like, oh no, wait, this is actually the game. <laughs> you know they were they're actually showing the full the actual in real time uh, goals being scored so like ah yeah okay there's a reason why I'm watching a little bit more uh, football that I need to see <laughs> Dave Hannigan is ready to talk about one of the biggest superstars in American sport now judging by and uh, a bit of a global phenomenon judging by the ticket sales in Melbourne for a fight coming up in November Dave it's Ronda Rousey uh, who has sold out apparently uh, sold out completely straight away and there's talk of adding another 15,000 seats to bring the capacity up to 70,000, which is absolutely, uh, absolutely stunning, really. Are you surprised at that level of global appeal? I'm not, because UFC is such a global brand, and UFC is, is you know, regardless of, of what you think about it, whether you like it or, or loathe it, it is an incredibly well-marketed sport. It's a sport that actually has taught, should teach a lot of other sports lessons on how to market yourself and how to get yourself out there. So, no, I mean, in terms of its global reach, I don't think it's that surprising. I, I suppose the scale of it is surprising. 70,000 tickets in a, in a football stadium in Melbourne um, to watch something that may last 60 seconds, I guess, when you think about, like, about it like that, it is kind of astonishing. Yeah, and obviously, as you said, the UFC are very skillful at marketing their top stars, but the, those stars need to have the personality. And again, whatever people, people think about Conor McGregor, he's brought a lot of people along with him there. What is it about Ronda Rousey, do you think? What, what is the appeal of Rousey in, in this sport? Well, you know, I, I think it's the novelty value. First of all, she's she's the first breakout female star. They've had other uh, female MMA fighters in, in the past few years, but this one, you know, this this woman has broken out in a way, you know, that even Conor McGregor, who has again done a superb job marketing himself in America. I could not, you know, cannot even compare to what she has achieved in terms of her reach and her profile. You know, one minute she's on the, you know, Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. She's on a cover of Sports Illustrated. She's profiled in Rolling Stone. She's on Ellen DeGeneres, yucking it up with Helen. You know, she has a, she has a reach. You know, I, I put it like this. My wife, who has no interest in sport, knows who Ronda Rousey is. Uh, she couldn't name another UFC fighter. She couldn't name a current boxer, but she knows who Ronda Rousey is. But what, why is that, though, Dave? What is it about this girl? Because it's not as though she's been involved in, you know, a lot of classic fights. I mean, she demolishes everybody, you know, immediately. Uh, there's, there's, nobody can, can really give her a contest. Um, so what, what, is the, what is the appeal based on? I mean, why is it her? Why her? I mean, this is a well-marketed sport. We know that. Uh, there's lots of fighters in it, though, and she's by far the biggest. Why is that? I think it's it's the way in which she's winning the fights has kind of perpetuated a legend about her. You know that she's. It, a lot of people use the comparison of Tyson in the eighties when he would just get in the ring and demolish these guys. You know, within a couple of minutes or a couple of rounds, that that kind of has forced. You know that. Broke, the, broke her onto ESPN Sports Center. Oh, here's Ronda Rousey in 15 seconds demolishing some woman. Uh, she's unbeatable. She's unstoppable. And then, you know, I think the hype kind of feeds itself. Sports Illustrated described her as the most dominant athlete on the planet, uh, which, again, uh, you know, possibly within her own sport. Yes, it is true. But there's also then the confluence of, of sports and celebrity over here. Um, all of what she achieved or what she has achieved in the octagon, you know, only counts for so much. It is it is the ability to go into the mainstream media. It is the ability to have bit parts in movies. You know, she's been in all these movies, um, Fast and Furious 7, Entourage, 
uh, The Expendables 3. She has a, another movie coming out with Mark Wahlberg. She's about to star as in the Patrick Swayze role in a remake of Roadhouse, uh, the bouncer movie from the 80s. So it's also that. I mean, the sport is only one half of it. It is the fact that she has this extracurricular career that is also kind of amplifying the legend at every turn. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be a lot of the way the, the kind of the, the dream if you're in a sport like this because I suppose ultimately you can't really have that many fights. I mean, nobody can have that many fights. Yeah, interestingly though, it's the opposite to the model that traditionally was seen as the way to become the best at your sport. You know, be tunnel visioned. Yeah. Ignore all these extraneous parts of celebrity you, you, life. You can't afford to do that in UFC. You don't get paid <laughs> enough. You need, you, need, you, need to, you need to make money from other sources. And I've seen Ronda Rousey do interviews uh, and she's, you can see that she's kind of charming. She has like a good personality for that kind of thing. You know, she goes on chat shows and like has a laugh with the host, which is obviously at odds with this like killing machine mm. image that she projects when she's going in, you know, to the octagon. But what you were saying, Dave, kind of makes me think that actually the most important in, ingredient in, in, in becoming a, a huge star like this, I mean, along the lines of Rousey and along the lines of what Conor McGregor, I mean, Conor McGregor will tell you he's the biggest and he's actually really only the second biggest behind Rousey. But the most important ingredient isn't really what the personal qualities that you project so much as just winning all your fights. I mean, if you win enough fights in a row, it really doesn't matter what your personality is. You will become a massive star. Well, I mean, I think, I think though, Rousey and McGregor both have something in common. You know, there's a lot of great fighters in UFC, but the, what they have in common is that they, they can go on the chat shows and they can, you know, they can do a turn and they can joke around and, they, and you know, they're willing to, you know, to extend themselves and stretch themselves. A lot of UFC stars come from Brazil, so they have a language problem in the first place. You know, going out there talking, you know, talking on the highest profile chat shows in America. So I, I think the two of them work, work in tandem. But I will say this, I mean, just to give you some numbers, Rousey, and I don't know how long this will continue, but Rousey's last fight sold nine, there were 900,000, more than 900,000 buys at $60 a pop. Now people paid $60 knowing she was fighting somebody who shouldn't have even been in there with her, that she was going to demolish within a minute. Now how long more people will continue to fork over that kind of money for a minute or two minutes entertainment is, well, is a moot point. I mean, to be fair, Deb, it's not, it's not just one fight. I mean, you're, you're kind of buying a, 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 night, a night's worth of fight. I mean, if you're, the people at the event say we'll see 10 or 11 fights actually there and then people who buy it on a pay-per-view will see I think five so while Rousey's fight might not last very long you will probably it's not just you know just paying $60 for one minute well, I, I will say this, though. I mean, when they're marketing it and when they're advertising it, it's the Rousey card, you know, and yeah. you could argue whether it was a great card or whether it was not a great card underneath her that night, but it's her, you know, her name is on the show kind of thing. And, you know, I think McGregor, McGregor Mendez, 825,000 uh, buys, which shows that she is, you know, I suppose if we're going to go by the numbers, is definitely bigger. And then, to put that in context, Mayweather's last fight, which admittedly was a joke uh, against uh, Berto there a couple of weeks ago sold, they reckon may have sold 400,000. Uh, interestingly, McGregor was after that fight against Mendez. It's quite interesting. You, you never know when, when Conor McGregor is talking. It's obviously 
it's not like a real conversation. It's all, it's like one long ad. But he does sometimes drop things in, which you, you think hint at how he's actually feeling about things. And he seemed really worn out by the promotional tour, largely because he had to do a couple of them. He had to do everything for that he was doing for uh, for Jose Aldo, the initial fight. Then he had to do all the Mendez stuff. And he had to record some stuff based on the idea that the Aldo fight might still happen. So he was doing a hell of a lot of stuff. And he admitted to being worn down a bit by that, but that that's what you have to do. So when Dana White says something like, he's talking about Rousey here, and he says she's the greatest athlete I've ever worked with she'll do the work of 20 male fighters is that what he's talking about do you think more the, the work of 20 male fighters being she will be she's worth more than 20 of these guys in terms of the amount of hard yards she's going to put in for uh, in publicising the sport I, I guess you could you could read it like that I mean again you said you know when McGregor speaks you're not sure what's real and what's promotional it's the same with, with Dana White he thought that you know there would never be women in UFC and you know when people examine why he, he has brought women fighters into UFC. Some say it's just because of Rousey. He was won over by Rousey. Others say that he was won over by the fact that ratings were plateauing and he desperately needed some new sort of novelty, some new selling point. And that's why he went, you know, incorporated female to female weight classes into the UFC in the first place. But I think, you know, I'm not sure whether, whether he is having a pop at his male fighters complaining about the promotions. But, you know, like we talked about with the fame, it's a part of the you have to, you know, be a reality star. You have to have a WWE type mentality when you're selling yourself in this sport, and you have to be willing to put all of that, all of that stuff out there on a regular basis. And you know, I, I don't think that sits well with every athlete. Like you, you said, it used to be about you focused about what you did in the sport and how good you were and how great you could become, and the, all the other stuff was a kind of a sideshow. Well, the sideshow is part of the show here. All right, the sideshow nearly is the show, given how quickly she dispatches her opponents probably. Listen, Dave Hannigan, absolutely brilliant. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. If you aren't a regular reader of Dave's column, America at Large, in the Irish Times and irishtimes.com, you should be, so have a, have a read of that whenever you get a chance. Uh, just to may, maybe just make it a little bit more clear <laughs> how quick these fights are. It's not as though her most recent fight was just a one-round stoppage and that's, wow, she's really, really getting clinical now. I've got all her fights here, Ken. Mm-hmm. Will I rat- rattle through them really quickly? Yeah. Um, first fight in 2011, win, submission, armbar, 25 seconds, first round. They're usually armbars, aren't they? Uh, the second fight, submission, armbar, 49 seconds of the first round. Mm-hmm. Submission, armbar, 25 seconds of the first round. Submission, armbar, 39 seconds of the first round. She was then taken to, oh, nearly towards the end of a round before a submission by armbar was administered. <laughs> Four minutes, 27. A few more submission by armbars all in the first round. Uh, we're taken to the third round in one fight here by, who was it? Miesha Tate until Miesha, poor old Miesha, was submitted to an armbar. Yeah. Uh, she, they, they don't, uh, they don't get along. Her and he should hate. She got a little bit sick of all these. Uh, she was thinking, look, I got to start taking people out uh, old style. So a couple of KOs slash TKOs in the first round after a minute and six seconds, and then one after. Okay, these are the last three fights. KO TKO after sixteen seconds in uh, 2014 in July. A submission back to the armbar after 14 seconds. Yeah. Surely you can run away from somebody for longer than 14 se- the 14 seconds it takes to be submitted by an armbar. <laughs> well, I'd, run around I'd, back myself, I'd back myself to run around an <laughs> octagon for 15 seconds. So you, no, you only have to get around for about 12 seconds because the armbar takes a yeah, second. Yeah, surely, yeah. 
And then you've got the couple of seconds where maybe if it's Ronda Rousey administering it, you're probably going to submit a How long as- would it take for Ronda Rousey to get me <laughs> off? Like, you know, the, the chicken wire that I would have clambered up. <laughs> How long would it take her to get get me down there and give me a submission armbar? Doesn't have to feel like going four rounds. Well, uh, probably would against... And her most recent fight, KO, TKO, 34 seconds of the first round. Uh, but uh, maybe yeah. I was wrong to say that, that everything, the appeal is everything outside of the octagon, is her personality, because you get no... You don't even... She's only in there for 30 seconds at a go. I'm sure that's part of the appeal as well. People go, look, she's knocking the crap out of people. And why else do you watch combat sports? Yeah, uh, and the most important thing is winning in those things. And it doesn't matter what your personality really is. I mean, maybe, you know... Well, if, it does, it does. No. Well, of course it does. Well, Conor McGregor's not... Lots of people have won loads of fights. He's won all his fights in the UFC, though. Yeah. You know, he's, got, he's, on a, he's on a run. Now, if he, if he was to lose... Yeah, but if, he had, if he's a boring, monosyllabic person, he wouldn't be bringing the people uh, in the way he has done. And if, if Ronda Rousey couldn't perform in these chat shows, she wouldn't be asked on the chat shows because they'd be... The, yeah. the people booking guests would be like, why would we get that monoslavic sports person on? But she, it's the thing that makes her stand out is... Okay, what about the guy... Okay, this is a, maybe a little bit unfair because I don't know if he speaks that much English. Yeah. The guy Siver, is that his name? One of them. Siver. Well, yeah. he, I mean, but he's like, he doesn't have a you know, no, record but, that you can... No, but, but if he did, do you think he would be as big as Conor McGregor? Of course yeah. he wouldn't. He, he, of course well, he wouldn't. He, he as big as Conor McGregor? I don't know, but I mean, okay. Well, who, who's much bigger than Conor McGregor? In sport. Mm. In a similar type of sport. Floyd Mayweather? Floyd. Yeah. Now, would you describe him as having an attractive personality? No, not at all. I'm, no. I'm, not, say, I'm not saying that uh, being unbeaten and winning all your fights is an, an impediment in any way. It's the most important thing. The reason that May- Mayweather made, like, what, $200 million from the fight? Because yeah, but this is a 15-year-old. Well, Ma- Ma- McGregor's not even a world champion yet. Hmm? McGregor's not even a world champion yet. Well, he'd, and, he'd maintain otherwise. Well, he's an inter. Well, well, I, don't, I don't even know if he would actually. I think Dana White would. I think McGregor's fully aware. That he's no, not McGregor, I think I think McGregor would maintain that, mm. but he definitely isn't. Yeah, I mean, in the sense of the other guy is actually the worst. And champion. we're talking about this now. He was already getting huge a few fights ago before yeah. he'd beaten anybody, you know, and he was really beating the no marks. So I, I, it was it was the charisma that he brought to it was a huge and is a huge part of it. Yeah. Now, I haven't followed Ronda Rousey's career as closely. But she does seem like she's well able to to play that game as well, to play the publicity game. And the calling out of Mayweather is probably part of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she's not as... Um She's not really like uh, as outrageous. She's not as like Conor McGregor. Murray, no, she's she's she seems a bit less, um, a bit more. I don't know what I should say. Whether, whether I should say from the heart, but like she kind of seems to say what comes into her head as opposed to stuff that she's decided she's going to say. If you know what I mean. Yeah, when you you're when you're hearing Conor McGregor, you you rarely think. I've hinted at it. There. You, you really think this is exactly what Conor, Conor McGregor feels about him. This is a real conversation. Everything is is like an ad. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's selling himself. Yeah, and then he's backing it up. You do that is that is usually it. that is usually what you think. Um, in but her they, case, but they are slightly strange conversations in that way. It's that they're entertaining without necessarily. I, I don't know. There being that much insight with McGregor. Yeah. He's not necessarily telling you what he really thinks, no. All right, we're pretty much uh, done, I think, for this podcast, yeah. Murphy, give me the nod there. You're happy enough? No, listen, Owen, sometimes you got to just walk away, yeah. you know. I could prattle on for another you, 10 I mean, minutes if you want. You know, the, what about, the painter knows. Let's Owen, go and see if we can buy tickets to this thing in Melbourne. Go <laughs> 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 down and watch Ron Rousey for 35 to 45 seconds. Thanks mm. very much, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Garen. Thanks, Ken and Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Uh, drop us an email if you want. Secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. And we will talk to you. Uh, we've got a football podcast on the way. If you don't listen to that show, we'll chat to you early next week. Take care. What's going on? That's the second time it's gone off.
never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.